Sean Defoe filling in for Gavin Riley this morning and now joined by Colette Brown, columnist with the Irish Independent in studio and Fergus Finley, former CEO of Bernardo's and now a member of the HSE board to go through the Sunday papers. Uh, you're both very welcome and there's lots in the papers today, safe to say, Indeed between COVID, job. between the new government, between everything else. So we might start with first week of the new government. It's a little bit of um, going back to every new minister's background to see what interviews they had given before and <laughs> digging up the dirt on it, Fergus. What, what uh Drunk driving convictions they had, etc., etc. I, I, I quoted a, a two old friends of mine last week at the Examiner, uh, William Scalio, who said, "No government is ever as stable as it looks from the outside, nor as unstable either." Um, and you know, the first week uh, I think of this government has kind of proved that it looked like marriage made in heaven um, uh, initially, and suddenly after a week it looks quite shambolic. Um, now I have no doubt whatsoever that. It won't stay that way. Um, I, I think they'll they'll write the ship. Um, uh, but but um, another friend of mine, Pat Magner, always said you need a map of the minefield when you're in a minefield. And he's Michael Martin just seems to have hit kind of landmine after landmine. It kind of feels a bit. I I don't I don't have any inside knowledge, but it kind of feels a bit as if people have been waiting a long time to air their grievances with Michael Martin. It, you know, there was such an outpouring of insult and anger and upset and so on that it it wasn't it doesn't have a spontaneous feel about it. Mm. It has a kind of almost orchestrated feel about it, which which I think is probably more worrying from his perspective. Um, it's it's like they just have suddenly decided to tell the world they don't like him and they never liked him and who the hell does he think he is kind of thing. Mm. Um, it's not a good, not a great start for him. There's no doubt about that. Can I, what do you think? Because a lot of what is in the papers and people have been giving out about, I imagine most real people looking at who didn't get a junior ministry wouldn't care a huge amount about. So do you think there is a, a more, a deeper level to it, I suppose, that has this government in trouble already? Well, it depends on the county you're in, I suppose, whether, <laughs> whether or not you're going to be concerned about it because um, there was a lot of people certainly on the west coast of the country who seemed to be very annoyed that you know that region was entirely overlooked by by the government, and I thought it was notable as well. Norma Foley, our new education minister, the first announcement that she subsequently made in relation to her portfolio was a funding announcement for a local school in Listowel. So you know perhaps geography does matter after all. And for somebody who's so long in politics, I think it was kind of amateur hour from from Michal Martin the fact that he didn't seem to liaise with uh, Leo Varadkar about the cabinet appointment, mm. so that they didn't square off where in the country those people were coming from. The fact that he's perceived to have stabbed Dara Cleary in the back, essentially. He's been a loyal servant for the party for many years. First elected in 2007, has experience of being in government, has done Trojan work since 2011 in building up the country. So I think people feel that he was very, 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 very badly uh, 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 done by. Um, in relation to Eamon Ryan, actually just picking up on the interview that, that you did with him, I didn't buy that stuff he said about NASA Horrigan and appointing the most, you know, uh, competent people for, for the roles. Um, I, you know, NASA Horrigan, she's an architect by profession. She's a lecturer in sustainable development. She was the party spokesperson on finance. She was the chair of their policy council. I mean, it's hard to kind of conceive of a more stellar kind of background mm. that would, you know, line her up for a position within either the Department of Finance or the Department of Housing. The Green Party had those two options. They had junior ministries in those two departments. And instead of giving it to NASA Horgan, not only a woman, obviously, but seems to be the most qualified for the job, in my estimation, agent, certainly. And she was overlooked. And, you know, it's my opinion that she was overlooked purely for narrow political interest because she had voted uh, against the deal, obviously. And you can understand maybe that from Eamon Ryan's perspective. He wants to reward people who were loyal to him, who voted, um, who voted and 
in favour of, of the programme for government. But I think it would have sent a strong signal of the party kind of coming back together, um, healing divisions, as, as you said to him. And I think it was it was a missed opportunity. It was certainly a missed opportunity, particularly in respect of the fact that the gender imbalance in cabinet, the gender imbalance in the uh, in the junior ministerial portfolio. So I think, you know, you kind of expect better from the Green Party. And I think people were a bit disappointed with that, too. Do you think there is something wider to that? Because obviously we put Lorna Bogue's comments to him in relation to a more ingrained sexism within the Green Party, which he, he denied. Um, but is there an element of it there? And I know you were writing about this during the week in the entire political system. There, there certainly is. I mean, the the kind of structural hurdles that exist for women, even in the way politics operates, candidate selection in local constituencies where you're going for maybe the GAA person or you have um, incumbent kind of local councillors who would be preferred then for the party ticket for national elections. And the way even local council operate debar women really from kind of part- participating because it's very hard to take time out of your working life and your family life to kind of devote to to um to to local politics and there's a very interesting report actually just on local government generally and Sarah Moorhead a barrister did a review of the work practices of local councillors and she found actually that for only 15% of local councillors' time is spent on policy work, that 40% of it is spent fielding kind of calls from constituents. And actually, a lot of their work is filling out forms, filling out forms for social housing, filling out forms for grants, filling out forms in relation to the HSE. And pa- politicians are filling out these forms, but they have no control or power over, you know, the, the outcome of it. So they're filling out forms for people, submitting them to state agencies. And uh, Ms. Moorhead in a report points out, points out that this is just a complete waste of everybody's, of, of everybody's time. So I mean the whole manner in which politics works in this country needs to change and I think parties they do need to make much bigger efforts to try to attract women into politics. In the last lo- in the last general election uh, the Social Democrats, 60% of the of their candidates on the ticket were women. So, I mean, that shows that there are politically engaged women out there who are willing to fight elections, who are interested in politics, who are politically engaged. But the larger parties, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, particularly, who only barely scraped the 30% quota in February, they don't seem to be interested. I think women as well and got a lot elected. Well, yeah. well, she, she, yeah, no, they, they, they did indeed, but they, I think they were 33 or 34%. Yeah, yeah. So, and I mean, in 2023 now, the quota is going to go up to 40%. Mm-hmm. And I mean, political parties are going to have to do this work or they're going to be penalised. But, you know, I, I think they need to be much more kind of enthusiastic about the work that they need to do. I think one of the interesting things about the Social Democrats you mentioned is they all of their events, they provide childcare, which is a really interesting thing. I haven't heard any other party doing. They provide it off the party cost, which obviously helps people uh, to get access to it where they, they might not yeah, have before. I wasn't, wasn't aware of that. So, I mean, that's, an uh, you know, an excellent thing and quite yeah. simple, obviously, to, to, to organise from, from their perspective. Yeah, well, it was pre-COVID, maybe not so much now. We'll see. Uh, Fergus, just to go back to the the ministerial appointments, obviously with your own background, having been there, done that in terms of advising people, how do you think that both Micheál Martin and Eamon Ryan handle this? Because it seems to be, uh, in Micheál Martin's case, he's eschewed the loyalists and in Eamon Ryan's case, he's promoted the loyalists. And, and yeah, and, and Leah Rutgers made a couple of enemies as well. I mean, mm. Michael Ring was a sight to behold by all accounts. But, I mean, we've been here before and I don't know whether, I don't know whether this actually defines, you know, anything. Uh, it's certainly not what people in the country who are beset by COVID and by economic ca- catastrophe want to be talking about. Mm. Um, uh, they couldn't care less by and large. I take uh, Colette's point about, you know, um, some of the counties being being uh, particularly upset and, and so on. But by and large, they, they don't want it. I mean, it reminds me, I think it was, I don't know whether it was Charlie Hawhey who said it or whether it was Dermot Morgan who put the words in his mouth, but there is a famous Scrap Saturday scene where Charlie is saying, 
one of the great things about being incoming teacher is that you can appoint, 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 and you can disappoint. And I think, you know, the disappointed will are just going to have to learn to live with it or else we're going to have political chaos. Uh, I, I suspect that what you're going to have is several very, very grumpy parliamentary party meetings um, and Micheál Martin in particular getting uh, dragged over the coals and then people beginning to you know, pledge loyalty to the government notwithstanding, which they have to do. They have well, to well, do. I think the, the I think the import really of kind of the kind of deluge of backbench Unifold TDs who came out to talk about their disappointment and horror, at, you know, not being not being promoted. I think it just speaks to the weakness of Michal Martin within his own party now yes, that yes. That, those, that those people feel yeah. com- f- f- feel free to basically you know on but the record with journalists I think to make such this disparaging. Is his, this is his remarks. last go. This is his last go, and I think we knew that before the start. I think he knew that before the start. I don't think he anticipates leading Fianna Fáil into the next election, to be honest. But he's also lined up his successors with this week, or potential successors, is he not? Well, he certainly lined up the succession battle, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, but, well, Jim O'Callaghan certainly seems to view himself as a, as a line. He had a very interesting piece in the Irish um, Independent where he was explaining why he had declined the junior ministerial um, uh, posi- uh, position and he said basically that it seems like he's the future of the party and Michal Martin is the, is the past of the party even though the new government has basically just been in, in existence for you know a, a, a wet week at this point and he's talking about the need to kind of um, uh, you know, reposition Fianna Fáil as a radical centre ground party, whatever, whatever, whatever that means, and to try to, to attract uh, young voters because very problematically for Fianna Fáil, actually, you know, they're they're in government now. Michal Martin is the Taoiseach, but they're at fifteen percent in the polls, and young voters just simply aren't voting for 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 for, 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 for Fianna Fáil. And I mean, they they do have some serious work to do if they if if they want to rebuild, and they'll be rebu- rebuilding from government, which is going to make their job even harder because there's going to be a lot of tough decisions. And difficult decisions to be made in the next couple of weeks and months. Yeah, remarkable situation where you have Michal Martin lining up his successor race within a few days of being elected as Taoiseach and achieving that 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 goal. But anyway, we could talk about Jim McCallan just stopped short of calling it a temporary little arrangement. You <laughs> <laughs> might yet. There's still time. Um, has either of you been in a pub yet? No. no, I did try to go. I rang and tried to make a booking, but the pub was booked out. So <laughs> that, that it was a huge, no, huge, I'd... huge disappointment. But uh, booking and pubs, I know it's a, it's kind of a strange phenomenon, but I think it's just something we're going to have to get used to now. Just down the road from me in the village of Glasgow, there is a pub called the Eagle House, which has been closed throughout the um, uh, emergency, I was going to say. Um and they just opened it up as a pop-up where you can go to a door, order a pint, pick it up at the next door and bring it home. Mm. Um, you can't go in and you can't drink in the street. And a lot of people in the locality are doing that for the sake of it, the, for the novelty of it. I don't know how long it'll last. I walked down with my daughter and we had a uh, we had a pint and, and brought it home. Um, that's the closest I've been to a pub and I've no interest in going to a pub, especially after watching your colleague Barry White's um, video of Dame Lane last mm. night. It was absolutely terrifying. Abs- if that's the way we're going to behave, then the sooner we lock down again, the better. And I think this is part of the problem, Colette, is that there are those kind of places that are doing pop-up points, but you then, particularly in the city centre, you have nowhere to go to drink them. So people end up congregating like this. So were you yeah, around well, I was in I was in town last night, so I was out for dinner at a restaurant in uh, South William Street. And when I came out of the restaurant at about 10.30 and was walking up South William Street, the steps there leading into the Paris Court uh, shopping centre 
centre was like a zoo. It was absolutely thronged. Loads of people around uh, drinking. Um, there was music playing. Um, so it just, you know, it just seemed a really kind of surreal. So you're trying to pick yourself, your way through the crowd gingerly, um, you know, avoiding people to the best of your ability. But I mean, the only positive is that they're outside. They're they're mm. not inside in, in, in pubs, you know, cr- cr- crowded around like this. But I mean, I think it is worrying because when people start drinking, obviously your disinhibition uh, goes, mm. you know, your social dis- disinhibition goes down. Social distancing goes out the window. Obviously, people are kind of shouting at each other. Um, so it, it it is concerning because I'd say there were a number of different parts of Dublin city centre last night that did look, you know, similar to those images that we saw in Dame. Dame uh, and there seemed to be, um, I suppose, a, a combination of things. Some people who were spilling out of the pub that they'd been kicked out of after 105 minutes, but then also people who have just started to buy a bag of cans or whatever and drink in the middle of the city. Yeah, so it was unclear to me where people had actually gotten the alcohol, whether they're getting them in pubs and then sitting out or whether in, by and large, maybe they're going to off licenses and just bringing them into town and drink, drinking with their friends in town so I mean I think it's going to have to be policed a, a, a bit more carefully I mean we don't want to be the fun police <laughs> but we also want you know people to behave responsibility because as the country opens up now as the economy opens up it's all about personal seen, it's seen, all about personal yeah, responsibility I, I so we've had the rules and the regulations we've had businesses closed now that they're beginning to open it's down to individual citizens to kind of behave responsibly and try to the best of their ability to a, a bit, continue with a bit, the social but, distancing But policing has to be part of it I mean we're seeing enormous spikes in the US now. I think there's a real danger of very significant spikes in the UK. I don't want it to happen here. I think it can happen here. When you look at that uh, thing, and I'd encourage everyone to look at it, um, that, Bar- that Barry White did uh, last night, it really is scary. And and uh, it is precisely the kind of thing that in a fortnight's time will lead to a bump in the numbers. If the O rate goes back above one, we're going to have to start locking down again. And whether we lock down the city centre or whether we lock down Bray or whether we lock down wherever it is we lock down, uh, we're going to have to start locking down once the O rate goes above one. And now because we've built a much better infrastructure of testing uh, and checking and tracing, uh, it's not there yet, but it's much better than it was. We, we could probably decide easier and better what parts of the country and what parts of the city need to be closed down again. And I would be one of those people who would advocate forget fun police I would be one of those people that advocate no fun if you can't behave yourselves mm. you know and and uh, and I, I would shut it down yeah. um, I you know we, we just can't afford another resurgence in Ireland we're, we're on a knife edge as it is in terms of economic recovery uh, and the only thing that stands between us and a decent recovery is is another big spike in, in this uh, disease we still haven't got a treatment for it obviously we still have got a vaccine and so on yeah. uh, and we, we can't afford to allow um, our hospitals to be overwhelmed by but it's yeah. it's just the and enforcement I mean how how do you do that practically um, because I mean we're supposed to have um, supposed to be mandatory now to wear face coverings on public transport but you know I'd still estimate 60 just anecdotally 60 to 70% of people may be wearing face coverings maybe slightly below that but it's certainly it's certainly not everybody who's no, who's, uh, on, who's on public transport A lot less than the, yeah, the public figures that are there And you know well. for, and for the past week it's, it's supposed to have been mandatory it's not so I mean who's enforcing that nobody seems to be enforcing it and it's the same as you know the scenes that we saw in Dublin City Centre last night and cer- certain pockets of it I mean is, is, is it going to be the, the job uh, of the guards to go around and start start moving these people on I mean that's going to be a lot of work 
work for them if it is. The HSE is on the front pages uh, today. Fergus on the Aidan Corkery story in the front page of the Business Post. Uh, private hospitals and HSE squaring off over delayed COVID payments. Not all as it seems in terms of the arrangement and the money getting to them. I'm in the happy position, John, that I know nothing about this story and therefore I can talk freely about it. If I, I probably <laughs> if I had if I had an awful lot of inside information, I wouldn't be able to comment at all. I, I mean, I read the story. It strikes me as a fairly typical row between, you know, uh, and entities in the private sector uh, looking for payment from uh, from the public um, purse uh, and the public purse being a bit slow to part with the money. Um, I, I, these things always get resolved um, and sorted. I suspect also like there is a future relationship that has to be sorted out. Mm-hmm. Um, the state, Ireland, cannot afford to be in a position if there is a resurgence where we, we don't have access to the capacity, the additional capacity um, that the private hospitals give. Um, Ireland has had, before the COVID-19 crisis started, the highest bed occupancy rate in the OECD. We we operated day in, day out on an excess of 97% uh, bed occupancy in Irish public hospitals, which meant we couldn't possibly cope with any emergency. We were the country least able to cope and most at risk of being overrun. And that's where the private hospital capacity rescued us. Mm. Now, in the end, we didn't need it. And that was wonderful. Um, as the CEO of the HSE has said several times, that he'd much rather be looking at, bed that, at beds than looking for beds. Um, uh, and so... But but we may need them again in the future. So there's a negotiation going on now. I'm not privy to it. I'm not part of it. I, I imagine it's, you know, um, not the easiest negotiation in the world. It was never going to be. Um, uh, and, and this is probably part of that. You know, it's mm-hmm. it, it's it's one side saying, you know, you're, you're treating us very unfairly and the other side saying you're trying to screw us to the wall. And, you know, they'll sort it out. They'll have to sort it out. Um, Colette, a lot of talk in the papers about the, this potential for a second wave and how it might scupper the, the first wave that we're trying to get out of in terms of the easing of restrictions. And I think it's probably proving Leo Varankar's point that getting out of the restrictions is a lot easier than going into them. Yeah, I think um, I think Dan O'Brien mentions this in his column in the Irish Independent as well as the uncertainty factor. So he makes the point that, you know, uh, Fine Gael and Labour, when they went into government and they were dealing with the last economic crisis in 2011, you know, they kind of knew the lay of the land at least. It was wasn't a very pleasant. It was it wasn't a very pleasant outlining for them or or, or, or a situation to grapple with. But so not not only do we have um, the worst recession in in I think Irish history, the most rapidly progressing one. We don't know whether it's going to get worse or whether that second wave is going to hit. And if it does, then the recovery could be deferred till 2024. And Cliff Taylor, actually, in the Irish Times, had a very interesting piece just on the kind of demographic disparities and the regional disparities in terms of the impact of COVID on the economy generally. And he said uh, he cited a number of interesting figures. So a CSO report, seven out of 10 people have had no impact on their earnings from from COVID. But then when you go around the country, you see that in places like Donegal, Kerry, Louth, Wexford and Carlow, 60 percent of the workforce were on some kind of state support. So, you know, the COVID payment or the subsidy scheme, whereas in Dublin, Cork and Kilkenny, it was 40 percent. So you can see that maybe the urban centres are going to be better able to grapple with this to deal with this than, than rural Ireland. And then coupled with that, you have middle class professionals who have been able to work from home, who haven't been really, you know, that badly impacted by the crisis in terms of their income. But you have younger, lower paid, you know, 
less skilled workers whose incomes have been decimated basically and another interesting figure is that 96,000 under 25s are on the pandemic unemployment payment and when you wrap those people in with people who are unemployed generally that gives you a figure of an unemployment rate rather of 45% for the under 25s which is a really shocking figure. Now some of those people will be in full-time employment and they would have had part-time jobs and that's why they're in receipt of some kind of payment from the government but still a figure of 45% unemployment mm. for, for under un, under 25s and you, you you know the government does have a really really hard job to try to you know restore jobs for that particular cohort of people who are dealing with as well housing uncertainty income inequality job insecurity and the whole COVID mess. It, it does also raise the question Fergus in relation to the new government their biggest test might be the handling of the payments the COVID payment and the wage subsidy scheme and how though they are managed towards the end of the year a lot of talk in the papers today that the wage subsidy will be kicked out but that the COVID payment they still haven't decided on. Yeah and, and how all that's communicated how it's managed and how it's communicated I, I mean one thing that has really struck me forcibly and, and I mean Glett was making the point about the 2011 government and the certainty that it had and so on I mean that government the day it took office was told that within a couple of months within three months there wouldn't be enough money to pay nurses and teachers salaries and that the country would literally run out of money they failed completely to communicate that the last government that we had here did a brilliant job of communicating the needs uh, you know when it came to shutting the country down and and uh, so on they they and and that difference between uh, how it was communicated back then and how it was communicated now is part of the difference in you know the, the fracture that we had then and the solidarity we we have now um uh, you know it's a kind of different styles of leadership this government uh, has uh, is going to have to do a lot of the 2011 type stuff it's going to have to deal with you know the figures that yeah, Colette talked about it's going to have to deal with the, how to recover from uh, economic catastrophe um and they know that the people of Ireland will not accept another period of austerity under no circumstances will will that be allowed to happen there'll be i think you know, an awful lot of unsocial distancing type riots in the streets if they if they try to approach it that way. Uh, so it's going to involve really, really careful, subtle management and brilliant leadership and wonderful communication. And, you know, I hope they They're have not those not skills. They're not off to a great start, so in that regard. Uh, speaking of, of that kind of leadership, and just very finally, because we're up against the clock, we heard Eamon Ryan getting quite emotional when he talked about Dr Tony Hoolan, uh, who has obviously stepped back from his role uh, this week. A lot of that in the papers and, and someone who a lot of people are paying tribute to. Yeah, I mean, I, I was I was shocked actually when I because I was I wasn't aware of them, um, you know, his his family situation and the fact that he's been putting in 18 hour days, seven days a week, um, turning up for daily press conferences, briefing the media, being very patient in relation to taking questions. Um, you know, doing his utmost to try to communicate the extent and gravity of the crisis and also being really empathetic in, in his approach. Um, so I think there was a I think there was a sense of shock and sadness around the country when, when that news was revealed. And I think everybody's thoughts would be with um, Mr. Holohan and, and his family. Yeah, no doubt. John Hume once said that patriots in Ireland are often defined by their willingness to die for Ireland and he'd rather see it as somebody who was willing to work for Ireland. By that definition, Tony Holan has been and is and will be an outstanding Irish patriot. Um, uh, his, his uh, you know, his calmness in crisis is quite extraordinary. You know, we, we've been lucky um, and I wish I could remember the name of the man when we had the terrible weather, the beast from the east and storm 
Betty, or was it Storm Collette? I can't remember what it was called <laughs> uh, a few years ago. And we had this official from the Department of uh, the Environment uh, on our televisions every night, providing us with calm advice and leadership and so on. Uh, Tony Holohan, in you know, in perhaps larger measure than that, has 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 been a real leader. It's been quite astonishing to be able to. There's, and there's nobody else. If you look at the UK, you look at the US, mm. you know, you look at the conflicting messages. There's no other country that I know of where. Uh, that kind of coordinated, constructive uh, leadership has been managed to be put together and where politicians have been able to stand to one side and say, we support this rather than butt in and make the things worse. Absolutely. Well said. OK, we're going to have to leave it there. We're, we're fresh out of time. Thank you very much for joining us, Colette Brown from the Irish Independent and Fergus Finley, former CEO of Bernardus, a member of the HSE board.